Greetings. 4 p.m. actually, a minute after 4 p.m. And this is Lee Smith. And welcome to this week's show. Uh, a really uh, important show, as I'm sure most of you have been uh, carefully following the news coming out of Ukraine. And of course, the news uh, coming out of Ukraine is confused and confusing and intentionally so. It's worth remembering that uh, uh, U.S. intelligence services admitted to purposefully putting out disinformation, which they say was intended to confuse Russian forces and Russian officials. But uh, in reality, the purpose has been to confuse American audiences. So to clarify what's been going on, what is happening now and what is likely to happen, we have a, a spectacular guest, good friend. Uh, great analyst on uh, everything from foreign policy to military movements. Um, he's, he worked uh, in, in President Donald Trump's national secure on National Security Council staff. He was uh, a lead investigator for Congressman uh, Devin Nunes. Um, and he served Derek, I believe I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, 27 years in the U.S. Army, including combat tours in Iraq. Um, so Derek Carvey, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And um, yeah, if you, as, uh, if you uh, let's get right into it. So what, what do you think is going on now? And then we can backtrack a little and figure out what's been happening and led up to this point, and then where we'll be going in the future. What's happening in Ukraine? Well, you know, Part of the problem is trying to sort through the reporting and the spin coming out of Moscow, um, Kiev, and um, other capitals, including Washington, D.C., uh, as all are trying to shape uh, the information flow for their domestic audiences as well as to influence international uh, decision-making and public opinion. Um, mm-hmm. So it's sort of hard to sort through. You know, there are some things that we can clearly discern from this, though, that okay. you know, this is not going to be a short war. It's going to be a long war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to test the willpower of Western countries to continue to support um, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to be a financial burden. There's uh, issues of, of economics and food supply and oil and gas. Right. There's always the worry about escalation and missteps and widening of the war. Um, Moscow, you know, is focused on maintaining uh, support at home. And I think Putin and his allies have been effective in doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. They've been less interested in shaping international uh, reaction recently. Um, Mm -hmm. They're digging in for the long slog and... You know, we under we continually miss what's happening. I, I have a lot of experience on Iraq, Afghanistan, um, the first Gulf War, and mm-hmm. intermediate conflicts that we've had over the years, where the intelligence community um, is really good at reportingly, but uh-huh. they're not very good at predicting or understanding mm-hmm. the decision making and the motivations of of different leaders, whether it was Saddam Hussein. Uh, or the Ayatollahs, or Putin, or even our allies in many cases. Right. So, 
Uh, I mean, pred- predicting, pre- predicting, of course, looking into the future or is, is a harder task than, than saying what's happening now. And of course, we should be grateful when people can act, act, uh, accurately uh, describe what's happening at the present moment. But why is the U.S. intelligence community not, not uh, adept at, at looking into the future, how things may unfold? Well, there's a few things. Uh, one is they are much more comfortable with reporting reporting hmm. the intelligence they're getting, reporting on events and activities, reporting hmm. on numbers, um, more like CNN news, okay, hmm. with a little bit of analysis thrown in, which is generally short-term and so often very frustrating because when, you know, you read it, you say, well, that's so obvious, okay? Right. Um, but the more difficult thing is being predictive and hmm. not being predictive, but being willing to lay out courses of action with probabilities that the the enemy may take. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, when you bring up that in that insight to our political leaders, and they don't want to hear it because mm-hmm. the conclusions will have to will lead to very difficult decisions for our political leaders. So mm-hmm. if it's inconvenient there's less interest in communicating that inconvenient um, information because right. <laughs> they don't that want that makes sense so that's- um well, let me ask you said that you that you believe the evidence is pointing right now this is going to be a long conflict and some of the times we're seeing reports now it seems that at, at first the uh you know prestige media places like the washington post and the new york times were reporting that uh, the Ukrainians were doing very well, they were holding their own, they were pushing the Russians back out of different places. But now it seems that they're changing course a bit that the, that, that the Ukrainians are, 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 are getting pummeled um, by, by the Russians. And it looks like the Russians have, have, uh, you know, have, have taken, taken territory that they intend to hold. So why, why, why is your assessment that this is going to be a, a, a long conflict? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, you know, the Russians initially thought that they would would be able to roll over the Ukrainians, and hmm. there was like-mindedness in Washington, D.C. and other places. And then we signaled hmm. very quickly yeah. that we pulled our embassy out, we pulled our, our, our naval operating uh, elements out of the Black Sea, we pulled military advice. We signaled that, you know, this was probably going to be, uh, we want to get our people out and, and yeah. we do much about it because the expectation was that Ukrainians wouldn't be able to hold. Well, that yeah. dynamic changed and we've incrementally gotten back into it. The yeah. Russians adjusted and they've been realigning and bringing in more heavy combat power, yeah. more artillery, and... You know, they're focused more on the southeast region, and they are mm-hmm. just taking their time now, mm-hmm. okay? Right. And part of taking their time is pummeling areas that they have known that they don't necessarily want to uh, secure for their own for economic viability down the road. They're, mm-hmm. you know, and they're using the massive artillery and limited maneuver at this point to inflict uh, a lot of damage on the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And the Russians have taken a lot of damage too. Uh, you know, uh-huh. 
let's not be let's not fool ourselves about right. that um but the nature of the war is going to be to the advantage of of the russians i think hmm. the longer this goes on because they have unless the west can can maintain uh providing ammunition in massive quantities hmm. continuing to move armaments in there and that there are enough ukrainian soldiers okay yeah Fill the gap because they are taking significant losses themselves. Right. Um, are you surprised? Are, are you surprised that the Ukrainians have, have managed uh, have managed to put up a, such a fight? Well, this is one of the things that is difficult for for people to understand mm-hmm. and assess in the human, element of human nature and mm-hmm. pride and fighting for your homeland yeah. and you know, patriotism and how that infuses things and, you know, dislike for, you know, mm. Russia and what, you know, the experience that, that Ukraine has had with, you know, the heavy handedness of Moscow going back to Stalin and earlier. So all of that comes to the fore. And so it's not just about equipment or numbers of missiles or how much ammunition. It's the will to fight. Mm. And conversely, the the Russians have um, a problem in maintaining motivation because of huh. a largely conscript force that reportedly didn't know that they were going to be going into this fight and that they were going to be the aggressor invaders. And with losses and this not being a popular war, um, despite the propaganda uh, and the shaping of, of public opinion by moscow it's not popular and therefore you i'm sorry you mean it's not popular in in russia in russia right yeah so you know those those two things the motivation on the ukrainian side and the lack of motivation on the russian side okay but you know russia has dealt with that sort of thing in past conflicts um You know, and the brutal hand of Moscow where, you know, they would execute people that weren't um, doing what that was required um, or they would shoot people that retreated. You know, and we haven't seen really anything like that here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are lots of reports and some of it may be propaganda generated by Ukraine because there's an interest in that. So you have to sort through all that. But right. there should be enough evidence of it from real intercepts of, of, of you know, Russia and the stuff on social media and, and things that mm-hmm. indicate pretty clearly that there's dissatisfaction, there's sabotage by Russians on mm-hmm. their own equipment, their own fuel, um, wow. which undermines their ability to fight. Right. What, what is it? I mean, look, there's a, there's a varied opinion on this. Um, in, in this country, I'll say anyway, varied opinion on what uh, what Vladimir Putin's purpose was, or, or what what are Vladimir Putin how, how is this? What are Vladimir Putin's uh, goals? What does he want here? How much of this is about uh, setting down um, setting down lines, <laughs> red lines for NATO, saying you will go no further? How much of it has to do with resources in Ukraine? How much of it has to do with uh, uh, Russian imperialism, trying to reform the Soviet Union? I'm less inclined to believe that, but maybe I'm missing something. So 
what 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 do you what do what do you think the goals are here putin's goals well i think it's a little bit of all of that that you said hmm. uh but bottom line you know he's he has a personality with his mm -hmm. ego his his sense of what history is and what ukraine is uh hmm. he doesn't recognize it it as a historical entity uh right. unique character being separate from you know the the glory of russia and greater russia mm -hmm. um even today one eighth of the senior officers in the russian military uh were born and raised in ukraine huh wow okay that so, that, that i didn't know yeah. and it used to be a larger number okay um mm -hmm. But it's down to about one eighth now. Wow. So um, I think you know he does believe in in Greater Russia, and that huh. he has continually said over the years, not just in the last few years, decades. Hmm. Okay, that you know what happened to the Soviet Union was a travesty, and hmm. he believes in the greatness of Russia. And one of his personal goals is what's driven him is to get it back. Hmm. Unfortunately, I think delusion in Washington D.C. led by, you know, the Biden administration, the same kind of delusion um, that leads us to look at making uh, nuclear deals with Tehran. Hmm. Uh, you know, where we project weakness and weakness hmm. to people, whether it's President Xi in China or Putin or you know venezuelans doesn't mm. matter weakness when you project it is provocative because it yeah. induces that others that are more aggressive more committed um to look at that as an opportunity so we canceled nord uh we approved nord stream 2 we right. the Biden administration right. Right. They, they effectively signed off on Nord Stream right. 2. Can you explain the significance of that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, that seems to me important. And that's a, a point that lots of people, it appears, have missed. When people have been talking about Biden giving a green light to Russia, this seems to have been a significant part of it. So can you explain that a little bit? Why? Well, Nord Stream 2 is, is, are the new pipelines coming. Right. For, for natural gas coming out of Russia, um, mm -hmm. circumventing the overland routes coming in th right. through the the you know the sea north of Germany and Denmark, mm -hmm. those pipelines come in and then the gas will be distributed through Germany and to other places. And what that was going to effectively do was um, ne negate the importance of the pipelines crossing Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Okay, to Eastern Europe, and you know that was a direct undermining of of a major economic uh, source of revenue for mm -hmm. Ukraine, and it advantaged Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, right. uh, and was going to make um, Europe even more dependent upon Russian gas, right. and we weren't supporting. We we decided to to pull support for natural gas pipelines coming under the Mediterranean from Lebanon and Israel mm -hmm. and Egypt. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so we're pulling the plug on on those type of things, which were alternatives to to Russian gas, and then we give the approval for an expansion of Russian gas through Nord Stream two.
But it wasn't only that, Lee. Um, the Biden administration unilaterally extended um, the new strategic arms reduction treaty that uh, Moscow okay. and Biden. The Biden administration pulled the Navy out of the Black Sea when tensions were getting higher, hmm. um, evacuated the embassy. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. You know, can you six- explain first before we go back into this, like what it meant, the, the, the strategic arms uh, agreement? Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, a little. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mean yeah, to, agreements to make on, you write a paper, but just, uh, yeah, just, just a little bit would be nuclear, nice for you. nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, medium range and and intercontinental systems mm-hmm. that the Russians were violating uh, those those limitations, producing huh. new, new types of weapons that exceeded the the agreements, not just in modernizing, but in new capabilities as well as in numbers. Uh, and we've been adhering to those. Well, during the Obama years, we knew that they were violating that, okay? Right. President Trump came in and, you know, he was not going to move forward. And he was pushing uh, Moscow to adhere or mm-hmm. let's come up with a new agreement was making, uh, signaling that we would, not respected ourselves if they weren't going to respect it. So we weren't going to have a new agreement, mm-hmm. uh, but we went ahead and, and initiated under Biden. In the first. And, and, and that just, again, shows a lack of seriousness, seriousness and weakness. And then, you know, if you're China or your, your other countries, you look at the U S restricting U S production of gas and oil. Right. We know that story. Um, yeah. While we're approving things for Moscow, okay, right. and it just enhanced Moscow's importance, okay, right. international. And I'll just say this offhand: people say, "Well, mm. you know, we've got these sanctions on on uh, Russian oil and gas." And although mm-hmm. oil and gas continues to flow, they're right. selling discount to China and India, but the. Right. Counted price is still as much, if not more, than they were getting a year ago. Right. Because the market has gone up to like $120 a, a barrel. Right. I mean, we keep seeing reports that while the, uh, it appears Biden's plan, he boasted of tanking the Russian economy. I mean, it strikes me that uh, I mean, I've seen reports that the, the, the ruble is doing extremely well. And the Russian economy is, I don't know, we would say thriving. But it certainly hasn't been hit like the U.S. economy has through inflation. No, they've been hit in, in certain ways. And hmm. the longer this goes on, you know, in some areas they will will be hurt. In some areas hmm. they, they'll make adjustments. Okay. Right. You have to understand the China-Russian relationship is getting closer. Right. Um, and it's not just Russia-China, but India continues to work well with with them, so do a number of other countries. Okay, so yeah. you know, Western Europe has been uh, surprisingly uh, um, in agreement, uh, mm-hmm. towing the line. But the oil and gas continues to flow to Western Europe. Right. So, right. you know, a hundred billion dollars a month, I believe. You know, so 
I think of- I, I I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't comment without having without having gone into it in detail, but I, I thought that something happened yesterday, like the the Russians were threatening to cut off the French and, and, and may have done so. Do you Yeah uh, again I shouldn't they, I should. they'd made those threats at different times to different countries and we'll see what, right. what of that. But you know, the longer this goes on, alternatives start to fall into place. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh what do I mean by that? Um, supplies get realigned, you know, mm-hmm. um, they find new sources, um, right. they make, they make adjustments in domestic usage. Fortunately, it's not winter heating demand time. Yeah. Um, but you know, even you know, we've restricted our production. I think we're producing about 900,000 barrels a day less. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, from the time of, of President Trump. Um, right. And we haven't been expanding that because of numerous restrictions. We, and hopefully we'd be getting oil in from, through the pipeline that was shut down. Um, right. Keystone. Yeah, Keystone. So there, there's just a lot, lot going on. But, you know, the thing is, people will adjust, systems will adjust, hmm. okay? And the longer this goes on, new alignments are going to start to develop. Mm-hmm. I think seeing some strategic alliances beginning to shift. Um, really? Like what? What are you between, seeing? Between between uh, the cooperation, collaboration, the term may be mm-hmm. a lot too strong because it's not like a tripartite pact or the mm-hmm. X, you know, between Germany, Italy, and Japan or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, Russia. Moscow, I mean, yeah. Russia, China, uh, Iran, Venezuela. I agree. I think this is one of the fascinating things about this conflict that we're seeing a, um, a, a new block arising. The, the outlines have become very clear. And the, the U.S., uh, first Obama and now the Biden administration, whether it's as you mentioned before about the Iranian nuclear weapons program, but you know, I, I mean, it, it appears that we've helped, uh, we've helped fund and f- fuel and even arm this new anti-American block. But there's that. But on the other hand, no. what Putin has done is he has effectively driven, um, yeah, Norway and Sweden, you know, hmm. petitioning for to be part of NATO. Um, it looks like the European Union will move fairly quickly to bring Ukraine into the EU. Hmm. Uh, you've got Poland and uh, Romania and a number of countries that are closer to to uh, Russia and have borders with Russia. You hmm. know, uh, accelerating. Uh, Weapons purchases. I mean, the Poles are buying um, modern main battle tanks from hmm. South Korea. Um, I think I think they're called the Black Panther, you know, hmm. and they're getting new main battle tanks from us. And these are going to be purchases, and they gave up, a, you know, two brigades worth of T seventy two tanks, which hmm. they shipped over to Ukraine. You know, yeah. in the last 120, but you know, you had a strengthening of resolve among the Eastern Bloc and the European mm-hmm. countries on the periphery that are concerned, and so it's going to grow EU and NATO 
uh, mm. expansion. And we'll see what type of cohesion you have with that. And if they the actually- Turks, the, the Turks are pushing back on Sweden and Finland. Uh, is it Finland or Norway? I can't recall. But I know that the, the Turks are upset because uh, because uh, I, I think in, in the Swedish assembly, there's a, a, a PKK member. And I think that there's a whole bunch of um, uh, activists that the Turks, uh, that, that Ankara considers terrorists. They're affiliated with the PKK. I mean, the U.S. State Department sees the PKK as terrorists, too. So I, well, I, here's, I, I mean, yeah, no, I agree with you on that. But. In, in Ankara, okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Turkish president is never lets an opportunity for leverage and mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. for his gain. Even right. the most smallest of, of, of issues, he will find a way of maximizing that leverage to get something for Ankara. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, a guy he is who's, really good at it. Look, you can. Do, there's a lot of bad things about Erdogan, no doubt. But someone who's that focused on improving uh, his country's position all the time is fairly impressive. Yeah, and I wish we had the same thing here in Washington D.C. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, we're talking about what the, you know, what Putin's goals are. So, uh, can you help us? Help, help all us understand. What is it that the Biden administration wants? What are its goals? What should it be doing? What shouldn't it be doing? And, and I'm, I'm going to start from the position because, you know, there's a lot of people who believe um, I, I'm not going to make their case for them now. I'm not making anyone's case. But there's a lot of people who believe, look, we have much more pressing issues right now as Americans than a war in Eastern Europe, as bad as it is. No one wants to see another country. Well, no one wants to see lots some countries invaded and it's terrible what's happening to the ukrainians uh and their homeland but americans shouldn't be involved at all joe biden decided to send another billion dollars over the day while americans will find it increasingly hard to uh, afford fuel and food so there's lots of people that say what are we doing I'll, I'll i'll here's my general position very quickly while I'm sympathetic to that point of view, and I think that's a point, I think that we also lose sight of the fact that many of the bad guys here in the United States, the people who are hurting Americans, are, are aligned with American adversaries, like the Chinese Communist Party, like the Islamic Republic of Iran. So I don't see that there's that necessarily that big a distinction. So I, I think that Vladimir Putin is not, not a good guy. But I'll start with, like, should American resources be used to stop him in Ukraine? Well, I think part of the answer to that question, and I I fall into into this position. Okay. Putin wasn't going to stop with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people point to the idea that – the dalliance of NATO with Ukraine over the years is mm-hmm. what drove Putin. I think he just uses that as an excuse. This is something mm-hmm. that has driven him for a long time. It fits in with what he has talked about for decades. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know he wants to recover the former Soviet Union orbit. Okay, and he doesn't think that 
independent, has the legitimacy. He thinks it's part of greater Russia. Mm -hmm. so I, I think that if you let him get away with this, it won't be long before he will use the same tactics in Latvia or Estonia. Okay, mm -hmm. and he did the same thing. Remember in Georgia. Okay, where he mm -hmm. took some enclaves there. He took yeah. part of Crimea, you know, um, mm -hmm. under Obama. Um, so this is something, this is not just a recent phenomenon. So I think mm -hmm. you have to deal with it. And, you know, I, are you, I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, it's like, get, are, are you shuffling something into the microphone? Some of the times. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just yeah. close it to it. Um, so right. I think he's... Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, just because it's a, a, a gets a little hard to hear you with whatever the static okay. is. No, no problem. Um, so Putin is driving this. He has a vision. Um, it wouldn't stop with Ukraine if you if he ignored it. You know, mm -hmm. so you have to raise the costs and you have to be committed to it. Uh, how do you do that? And how do you do it while you still have to do other things? Okay, you mm -hmm. have to, be able to walk, talk, chew gum at the same time. I, I worry that this administration has limited ability to do that, especially mm -hmm. given the leadership bandwidth right there in the White House. Um, and then I worry about the quality of the leaders that we have, whether it's mm -hmm. Blinken over at, at State, whether it's the National Security Advisor, whether it's General Austin mm -hmm. in, in yeah. DOD, um, because I don't think we have an A team in place here that focuses on American national security interests based upon really understanding the real world they have mm -hmm. as it really is and who these people really are and what they're really trying to do they create this this imaginary world like secretary former secretary Kerry uh, continues to do and others where our national biggest national security threat is really right. you know global warming okay right so give us a break we we've, we've got yeah. real american people right. saying you know, six dollars and fifty cents for fuel oil. You know, to heat their home in in March of this year. Uh, oh, wow. Three times what they should have been paying. It's you know, that's reality for for the Americans as we know it, and right. they're divorced from that in Washington D.C. in this administration. So, China is the preeminent threat. We have mm -hmm. to remember, Moscow has a has a GDP about the same as Italy's. Mm -hmm. You know, and their military has a lot of great strategic capabilities, hypersonic uh, delivery capabilities yeah. that they've been on. Uh, they they do quite quite well, but you know, in developing some of these niche areas. But they have a problem, as we've seen in this in this war, of being able to mobilize and sustain and have good maintenance and a professional cadre of force. There's an underlying degree of corruption across their whole economy that undermines their efficiency mm. and don't have the, the size that we have. So they have a lot I, of- I'm, I was gonna, I'm just gonna ask you about, I was gonna ask you about that because I figured you would know about this as well as anyone, but the idea of maintaining weapon system, especially things like tanks, I mean, isn't this famously why, uh, why the Soviets were able to hold off the Nazis in World War II because Soviet tanks were, you know, I mean, not, not as beautifully crafted as as uh, as German Panzers, but I mean they were they were they were relatively easy to maintain and switch switch in and out parts. So 
how did this happen that the Russian military now is having problems with, with maintenance and such things when their, their history suggests that they're, they're, they're the opposite. They're good at maintaining things. They're good at being able to switch, you know, switch parts and, and, and switch parts on the fly. How did this happen? Well, I, I think there's a little bit of a misreading there oh, about okay. the Russian response in World War II. Uh, oh, they, okay. they did oh, best develop the T-34 tank, which mm-hmm. was an efficient tank. And then they got large numbers, similar to what we did with the Sherman tank, which wasn't of the same quality huh. as, as you know, the Tiger tank, for example, um, right. and some of the other Panzers. But over time, by the end of the war, their tanks were quite good. And, the Russian uh, tanks were. The Russian tanks were quite okay. good. Yeah. And they had more mass. So they had mass and some yeah. quality. Okay? And that makes a, a great deal of difference. The, they have a smaller military now, um, mm-hmm. and reliance on a lot of older systems, but they do have, you know, more modern tanks. I don't think they have them in the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with any army, you know, and as a former infantry officer and, you know, spent a lot of time in the field and doing exercises in Reforger in Germany, for example, which was always a very large uh, multi-division exercise across central Germany. People might not remember it, but we would have you know, 160,000 uh, people in the field exercising mm-hmm. over a period of a month. Um, it takes training. It takes time. You got to learn how to maintain your vehicles. You got to have the parts. Mm-hmm. You got to have the supply chain working seamlessly. Um, you get, and you can't, if you're not out there training regularly, your professional capabilities are going to go down. If you're not recruiting and maintaining a excellent cadre of NCOs and officers, which they don't have, at, huh. they don't have a good non-commissioned officer corps. Right. Uh, right. You know, there's a, just a lot of things that become hindrances to them being able to really be effective. Okay. And they've relied more recently on in mass, but if you look at where they've gotten, you know, where they've had successes with their special operations forces and mm-hmm. the Wagner Group, which was a private security mm. firm that has right. been doing a lot of things in places like Libya and Central Africa, mm-hmm. um, you know, that <coughs> special ops, low end, uh, mm-hmm. not a lot of equipment type of force structure. They haven't been tested um in a conventional way for they haven't moved significantly since they invaded Afghanistan in 19, I mean, in, in wow, yeah. 1979. Fascinating. Well, look, this, this reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. What does this say to U S military planners? Because lots of the forces that I, I mean, well, you, you tell me, when you were in Iraq, I mean, most of, I mean, most of the fighting was done against terrorists and irregulars, and Saddam's forces melted away pretty early on. So, what are the kinds of what are the kinds of things that American military planners and strategists are learning from watching this? That now they're actually two real armies, one stronger than the others, and the Russian, the Russians. But yeah, what 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 do you think people are learning? Well, I, I think there are some things that 
that we that are are being reconfirmed. Um, mm. Maneuver combat power, tanks, armored per, good armored personnel carriers, um, integrated with artillery in a combined arms way with air and mm-hmm. attack helicopters and security for your force is still extremely important and mm-hmm. and dominate, but you have to be thinking in terms of how do you protect your force, mm-hmm. drones, um, the, the types of things we've been providing, um, for example, um, switchblade tactical unarmed aerial systems, which you know are are su- like su- little suicide drones that will mm. uh, be guided in on a tank and it'll strike it in its most vulnerable spot. Um, you know, but none of this is is easy. Integrating. Yeah. Aerial systems with armor, your defensive systems, understanding terrain, keeping your supplies and your logistics going. The logistics uh, factor for the Russians really was was part of the major downfall that they had in the first two months. Huh. Uh, and so we focus a lot on the logistics tail, and we're, we are better at it than them because we've been doing long-distance logistics with air sea and rail and wow. since world war ii can you so, explain a little bit more about logistics i, I mean I, I think i have a pretty good idea i just want to make sure just want to make sure i'm getting it well okay so if you're you've got to be able to move not just the main battle systems your tanks your artillery but the troops their support their mm. mess hall their rations mm. gas diesel okay the the command and control, the the radar systems, be able to get everything set up and be able to integrate it, and then you got to maintain a long distance supply line of of high volume fuel. Yeah, wow! Uh-huh. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons, mm. you know, a day being consumed in remote areas being distributed, yeah, not wow. stations and um, pipelines, but you know, by air and, mm-hmm. you know, by truck right. over difficult terrain, sometimes, you know, where bridges and roads have been damaged or or totally destroyed. So you have bridging material, you have to be able to have engineers that can repair and replace it. You got to defend those logistics routes from uh-huh. prediction by, you know, Navy or or Air Forces or drones or on the ground resistance or special operations. Right. It's, that's, that's a, yeah, no, that's a remarkable, what you're describing is a remarkable ecosystem. That's amazing. Um, is, is, is the United States still capable of doing that? You saw this in Iraq. This is still, still how the United States goes to war. I, I worry that we would be fine in a, in a, minor conventional mm. conflict okay um yeah. what but do you mean by minor something uh like what we had in in iraq was a mm. you know second or third rate power okay yeah but both in in the wars we've been involved in where we moved we had six months to prepare mm-hmm. you, know, you can deploy two hundred fifty thousand soldiers and everything that they need and maintenance and training and right. sustain- 
you know, and your electronic gaming equipment and medical and set up hospitals and bring up reserve forces and get them mobilized, processed, and deployed as units. You got to think in terms of your chemical and biological and radiological defense capabilities. Mm. You know, are you training everyone? How do you maintain all the equipment from night vision devices? Yeah. You know, and we well, bring... people, people are worried there. I mean, people are understandably worried. Maybe you can give us some insight. People see that uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, is interested in, as, as is Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. I mean, they appear to be pushing out, um, pushing out combat troops. That's part of the white supremacist purge while they're pushing woke indoctrination. So if they're doing all of these different things, how ready does that leave the United States military for the, the more serious conflict that you're describing rather than against a second or third rate power like Iraq against a more formidable adversary? Well, there's two, two things here, Lee. I think I want to yeah. say unequivocally that mm -hmm. You know, having been in DOD and having been on the House Permanent Select Committee of Intelligence and having been involved in getting the briefings from the FBI mm. and DOD about, you know, where there might be extremist elements and what the numbers yeah. really are essentially non-existent in DOD. You're talking about this this white supremacy garbage right. that they keep pushing. Right. The right. culture of the military. People come in, whether they're from, you know, the inner city uh, black population or they're, you know, from, you know, and they're, they're white and they haven't dealt with the black it, it becomes, you know, you don't survive in the force, hmm. you know, exhibiting that type of prejudicial behavior. You right. just, okay. And if they come in young and dumb, mm -hmm. they get hated or they get kicked out. Okay? Right. It's just the way it is. Now, the wokeness. That's on, good to know. A, a second or third order unintended consequence, which, you know, we know that from a recruitment perspective, recruiting is way down. And it's way down mm. in traditionally strong areas for recruitment. You know. Huh. Places like, you know, rural Wisconsin, rural Indiana, rural, I would say red state areas. Okay. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that, and the DOD won't admit to it, is because the perception of the military becoming increasingly woke isn't what they want to sign up for. They want to sign right. up, you know, patriotism, defend America right or wrong, you mm -hmm. know, hood, apple pie and Chevrolet. God bless them. Yeah. And and they're disinclined to do that. And then when you, right. you fail on Afghanistan in a disastrous mm. way, yeah. it's so ineffectiveness and confusion um, in the administration. Uh, it's going to create a disincentive for people to yeah. join. Right. How does that get? I mean, it's not, but, I, I doubt it will be fixed under the Joe Biden administration, no, but it's no. not an impossible thing to fix, right? I mean, people were enthusiastic. The, the, the whole point of make America great again was to remind people that their patriotism is, is one of the most valuable virtues that, that they can display, right? Well, so it's, it's not that hard to turn it around, is it, or what? 
an attack on on nationalism, like American pride, pride in American history, pride in what America has offered the world, you know, pride of of the potential of what America can still do for the world. That's a attack, you know, systemically um, in in our country. And and unfortunate. And you can have a rebirth of nationalism. you know, it's going to be tough because you have to deal with universities that are hotbeds of, of ideological indoctrination. Huh. You have to deal with a, a younger generation that's been brought up without being taught about the founding fathers and the reality of seventy mm-hmm. six and that 11 of 13 states, you know, wanted and supported the original Declaration of Independence where all men mm-hmm. are created equal. And only yeah. Georgia and South Carolina opposed mm. that. You know, eleven of thirteen states were were essentially against slavery. Yeah, I like I like here. how you use no, that's the na- issue. I like how you use nationalist unapologetically. It's great. It's very important, I think, for people to to revere this great country. Yeah. Every other country, you know, they have pride in in their country, whether you're in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, you're in Venezuela or Mexico, okay? But there's a self-loathing being generated by and and pushed by the likes of the CNN crowd and the MSNBC crowd that is, you know, disingenuous, unfactual, and spin. You know, um, it's worse than that, as you were saying. It's being pushed by the White House. It's being pushed into the Pentagon. So it's not just the, it's not just the media. And I pull um, back you know. one issue here, though, Lee, and that yeah, is, okay. and we chew gum and walk and talk at the same time. Okay. Okay. I think we have to deal with the Ukraine situation. We have to be smart about it and recognize mm-hmm. we have to sustain it over a long time, and eventually, at some point. You know, Ukraine is going to have to have the means to retake territory, its mm-hmm. own, you know, because Zelensky and their population are not going to be satisfied with giving up two, three, four provinces in the industrial heartland of their country. Mm-hmm. And they well, what, what does that look like for the United States? Not, not, not how long. Or that may be part of the question. More significantly, what does a competent uh, White House, a competent administration, do to to uh, accomplish these things? Well, I think we need to work hand in hand with our European allies. Mm-hmm. You know, to have they been effective at all in this? Have they a sustainment, a sustainment and growth package mm-hmm. for Ukraine. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, is going to take some dollars. Now, mm. just looking at something, you know, during the Cold War, you know, uh, we were regularly spending 4.5% on average, quite often higher, right. for, for, you know, sustaining our military. We're not anywhere close to that, okay? I mean, it, in today's dollars, that would be closer to $1.4 trillion mm. a year. Mm-hmm. On defense. Right. Now, you know, it's a guns and butter issue, but we need to manage that and be on the long term track for that, I think, 
for Ukraine, and then build our alliances and our partnerships. And, and it's hard to build alliance and partnerships when you're you have a fickle administration where you have inconsistency, yeah. and contradictions coming out of Austin and Blinken and the White House. Yeah. How do you how do you make this case to people? Maybe some people listening listening to us, uh, others who will listen to us. How do you make the case? When people are saying, and I'm going to say it, it's like, well, you're talking about us giving money to a whole. But we've haven't we given enough? Haven't we given enough money away? Americans are hurting right now. When we give this money away, we don't see we don't see how it helps us. Well, it looks like some of the times our money is being wasted by extremely bad people. Lots of people don't trust Zelensky. Lots of people. Lots of people are worried about the the, the uh, Joe and Hunter Biden's relationship with Ukraine. So, how do you make the case to people? And so, like, well, here's why this is really important. I know why you're suspicious, uh, why you're reluctant, but here's why we do it. Well, this is just Derek Harvey's thoughts on this. And okay, yeah, and that's what we want. Readers, I mean, for your listeners. Yeah, yeah. I was the, I was the lead investigator and senior advisor to as in the House Intelligence. I've been involved in the international security arena for a long time. Um, you know, I spoke to Victor Chokin and these prosecutors. Hmm. Oh, right, yeah, that's right. Hunter Biden and Burisma. Ah, that's very worth that. I hope people will remember that this, that uh, that the uh, the Democrats, the progressive faction of of the United States, they they tried to get you in trouble. They tried to set you up and frame you. Right. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I, I still have a, you know, a defamation suit moving mm. forward and CNN for that. So um, may, you, may you may your suit thrive. May yeah, you take them so. for everything they have. <laughs> yeah. But the, the thing here is um, we have a lot of history. And unfortunately, in the last, you know, from the Obama years, when mm. Joe Biden became, you know, the person focused on Ukraine for the yeah. administration. And he had someone like Eric Chiramella, who was the national- Ah, the whistleblower. We're allowed to use, we can, we can use his name here, Eric Chiramella. That's, yes, right. Yeah. And, and he worked closely with, with, you know, President Biden and he had a special mm. relationship with the vice president's office that far yeah. exceeded what, you know, a regular person working on, mm. on the National Security Council would have. Um, and he was the one who coordinated the phone calls and the extensive communications in early 2016 to set up the phone calls between Joe Biden and the president <laughs> of Ukraine uh, after the yeah. raids on Burisma headquarters and yeah. raids of the Burisma company president's home uh, in early 2016 and it got the vice president and erica chiomella and everyone in hyperdrive hmm. led to that trip over there where they had to twist arms and threaten to you know pull billions of dollars in support right. which finally got the prosecutors fired we understand that right. but at the end of the day a greater strategic interest, in my view, is mm -hmm. recognizing that Putin needs to be stopped. Okay. okay? I don't want a wider mm -hmm. war. I don't want it to go to Latvia or Poland or someplace mm -hmm. else. You never know what will happen. 
That said, China is the number one threat. And oh, guess who has the great relationships with China? The right. Biden family. The Biden family. The, the Biden family. The, the whole Biden administration going no, up and Bi- down the list. Basically. Biden family in particular. Okay. Yeah. And, and a lot of that's on the laptop. But, you know, Jim and Sarah Brady, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Brady is, is, you know, president. Excuse me. Jim uh, Biden. Biden. Yeah. Is, is the uh, uh, brother of Joe. And it's the family business. And Joe's the big guy. And no. we are not doing what we need to be doing. This, the the SEC is not investigating uh, the attacks on American investors and them getting ripped off by right. the Chinese. They're not investigating uh, a lot of what's going on in the unfair trade practices and mm-hmm. manipulation of markets, the threats to our own supply chain, and you know the coziness of this administration in the face of aggressive action by Beijing towards Taiwan, South Korea, and the whole Asia Pacific. Right. And are, and, you, surpri- are you surprised to have seen the Russians and the Chinese grow closer over you know, Ukraine? That has been a trend going on for, hmm. for you know, since midway through the Obama administration. Hmm. It just has come to the fore, and it's just so obvious now. Right. And, and you know, Beijing is the dominant player in that relationship. Again, right. look at the size of that economy, the breadth, the Thank, reach. Thanks, thanks mostly to American uh, corporate and political elites who, who grew that economy. Yeah. And you should probably get Devin Nunes back on to talk about his investigation into... Yeah. I do want to talk about that at some point, right? Because this administration, they talk about it, okay? They throw, I mean, but it's mostly to obfuscate and protect themselves. So they'll talk about it rhetorically, but substantively, they have no interest in doing much about China. Right. Right. I worry well, the same some of our own Republican leaders, like Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Uh, some are on the way out, like uh, Pat Toomey. He's 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 uh, appears to be uh, appears to have a stake in. I, I maybe I shouldn't say have a stake, but he appears to be interested in defending Chinese interests again and again. And then all you have to do is look at the likes of you know former you know Speaker John Boehner and other Republicans mm-hmm. that are part of that uniparty elite. You know. Right. Be- they're not representing well, then, then yeah, let me, Republicans. Let me, let me ask you then, if these guys are not serious about China and we're in agreement, uh, vast agreement, that China is partnered, uh, Beijing is partnered with Moscow, then how serious are they about what's going on in Ukraine? Or is this just a phony war that they're spending many billions of American do- dollars on? Um, you know, for, for no effect, like they don't really, they don't really care. Basically is, are, is this simply a diversionary tactic from their own problems at home? Or is there anyone serious in this administration that sees it, you know, that sees it the way you do that Putin is a real threat and the issue is not just Ukraine, the issue is Europe in general. The interest is, uh, America's position in the, in, in Europe and the Atlantic ocean. 
as well as the Pacific Ocean, especially regarding China, these guys aren't serious. They're just faking it. What, 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 so what's happening? Well, I pray you're wrong about that. <laughs> mm. like um, what, that they're just faking it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but you're saying I think that it doesn't seem like very competent, uh, a very competent management of, of the American end of the conflict. Well, here's what I, I, I would just put some things in perspective here. Okay. Uh, even with, with the, the diminished presence we had in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, down to 10,000 um, military there, and then we mm-hmm. had CIA and others, we were spending $75, billion a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I looked, DOD had committed about $7.5 billion to Ukraine this year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even if we doubled that, you know, it is, you know, what one sixth of what we were spending in 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 Afghanistan. And people would say we shouldn't have spent anything, and we should have gotten out of Afghanistan in two thousand three, or two thousand five, or so. But you know, this is an administration. You know, and you know, I I would say, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we spent a billion dollars to build the wall? Okay. Wouldn't mm, it be great right. if we were actually allowing the you know the border patrol to arrest and yeah, right. wouldn't it be great right, to do to do their jobs, yeah. To do their jobs, right. You know, there's a lot of that, okay. Um so but I don't think you know, I think there are some some people that understand that and I think politically they know that they they're if Ukraine would have fallen quickly, it would have been one thing. Mm. They said, okay, right. wipe their hands of it. But the fact that the Ukrainian people and Zelensky have shown valor mm-hmm. okay, and commitment and courage to fight for their country, that that brought most of yeah. Europe with them. Yeah. And that's forced the hand of this administration. And now they have to deal with the reality because if it collapses, it will be blamed on them like Afghanistan was. Right. Uh, interesting. So um, I think the reality politically that they just have to to do it. Now, I'm not sure they will do enough to allow Zelensky and them to recover their lands, but they won't put pressure on Zelensky to acquiesce to Russian uh, demands to approve right. the autonomy if not the integration of those provinces into Russia. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, we're going to, I'm going to let you go in a second, but before I do, I want to ask you about, I, and I, I hope that people listening um, will, will follow your campaign for county commissioner in Washington County, Maryland. And first of all, I want to say congratulations on your campaign and I wish you all best luck, but I want to see if there's, if there's any news from the campaign front, you can give us. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's so amazing, Derek, that, you know, that all of your government service on the national level, in the White House, um, on the Hill, working for Congressman Nunes, on, 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 in, in the trenches, in Iraq, uh, in the intelligence services, all the different things that you've done for a country on the national level. And now you want to, you know, you want to serve your your home, Washington well, let me County. Tell my, yeah, let me that's tell exciting. You. It's great, man. Congrats. Let me tell you, tell your listeners, I'm, I'm running for yeah. county commissioner. 
in my home county, uh, Washington County, as you said, mm -hmm. I have a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 1-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I don't want my county, my home, where my kids go to school and the community to be ravaged by the craziness of wokeism mm -hmm. that's impacted Montgomery County and Loudoun yeah. County, Virginia. Yeah. And so that's my motivation. I have experience, yeah. knowledge, and expertise that can be very helpful in this community. And I'm offering myself up to be county commissioner here. And I, the election's July 19th. And well, if, if, anyone, uh, if anyone who's listening is in Washington County or has friends or relatives who do, I hope you will tell them about, uh, about Colonel Derek Harvey's candidacy. He's, uh, it's simple. Vote uh, Derek Harvey. Yeah, VoteDerekHarvey.com. Derek, uh, uh, Derek, Derek friend, uh, uh, great guy, great patriot. And um, look, I want to thank you so much for, for uh, a, a wide-ranging conversation from <laughs> Ukraine to, to World War II, Soviet tanks. I'm really glad I asked that, by the way. I didn't know. And I figured you would know about it. You're a great student of military history uh you know civil war world war ii but i'm glad i asked that and we got into it well it's and, good um, to be a professor you know yeah. i've been teaching off and on my whole career too at universities so oh that's right that's right i've forgotten that derek uh thank you so much for joining us today and i want to thank everyone who's listening that uh i'll be back next week saturday afternoon 4 p.m eastern time in the meantime uh, I hope that you all have a wonderful Father's Day. Derek, I hope you have a great Father's Day um, and uh, you get to celebrate it with your family and all of the rest of you have a great Father's Day too, whether you're fathers or whether you're married to a father, a son or a daughter of a father. Um, spend it with that, uh, with that head of the household. And um, I'm sure you will all have a special day and a great rest of your weekend. Derek, thanks again. Thank Listeners, you. Thank you again. Bye.